The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. I felt like I had been sitting on this fence, and when I prayed, I this internal sense that, okay, I'm no longer on the fence. I now am in the camp of Christ. I belong to Him. And uh, all this sense of peace flooded through me. That opening statement about the peace of Christ comes from a man who started out life born to a Muslim father, and you'll meet Mateen Elas here today on First Person. Welcome, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Before we hear from our guest, let me thank the Far East Broadcasting Company for the support which makes First Person possible. FEBC is dedicated to proclaiming the news of Jesus Christ to the world through radio and digital media, and you can help with your support. Learn more at firstpersoninterview.com. Also at our website, you can learn more about our guests, including a schedule of upcoming interviews. Go to firstpersoninterview.com and use our smartphone app as well. Well, both today and next week, we're going to feature a conversation with Mateen Elas, who tells his story being born to a Muslim father, raised for more than a decade in an Arab country, but eventually choosing to be trained in Eastern mysticism before turning to faith in Christ and serving as a minister of the gospel. You can read more about our guest at firstpersoninterview.com, but as he joined me in the studio, I asked him to start at the beginning of his story. As the story begins with my parents' meeting in uh, Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, my dad had grown up in Syria, the Golan Heights, went to the University of Syria in Damascus, graduated, came across on a graduate program, uh, was a, raised as a Sunni Muslim, uh, devout in his younger days. And then as he got to the United States, he sort of uh, started to get more secularized, become uh, much more a fan of the Enlightenment. Uh, met my mom. He was a graduate student. My mom was undergraduate. They ended up getting married. And uh, I'm the second of four children. I was uh, born actually in New Haven, Connecticut, Connecticut, where my dad was working on a uh, another degree, advanced degree, after he graduated from Wisconsin. And when I came along, decided he'd better get a full-time job to support the family. (laughs) So he hired on with Aramco Oil Company, which had its headquarters then in New York City. So as an infant, I was transported with my older brother to New York City. We grew up there. Two more kids came along. And uh, then uh, we moved over to Saudi Arabia in 1964, where Aramco's main (laughs) headquarters is. Uh, my dad uh, worked there, was uh, an executive with the oil company, so that was his career, and that's where we were raised. So he was from Syria. From Syria. But you lived in Saudi Arabia. Correct. Okay. Uh, and how long did you live there? Well, my parents lived there 20 years. It came back to the States in 84. Uh, Aramco had its own school system through ninth grade, and then after ninth grade, it was kind of like this cliff that was approaching or that you were approaching. and. <laughs> When after you finished ninth grade, you had to be shipped off somewhere in the world to con- continue your education. So most most employee children went uh, to tenth grade and on to some kind of boarding school, or else lived with other family members. Did you identify yourself as an American growing up then? Yeah, I thought of myself as American, but I also thought of myself as uh, uh, I thought I guess I'd say Arab Amer- American. Um, 
I didn't want to lose that part of my heritage. And of course, growing up in Saudi Arabia, it was a vastly different world than America in the 1960s mm -hmm. in particular. What was that so, like? Well, I discovered when I, I came back to the States to start high school or 10th grade in 1970. And so I'd missed the whole civil rights uh, movement. Uh, I, I didn't really know who Martin Luther King Jr. was. I'd heard the name. And, of course, I'd heard about the assassinations of the president uh, and uh, You know, many Bobby of us Kennedy. missed it as well, even though we were here. <laughs> I, I, I look back on that time and I think, where was I and what uh, was I thinking? Because it, it all went over my head at that time, yeah. you know, yeah, sadly. And, yeah, well, I, that's the reality when you're young. You don't necessarily pay much attention to what's going on in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that hit home for me was I was— uh, uh, paired with a guy, uh, an African-American fellow in 10th grade in the boarding school I went to uh, uh, as a roommate. And uh, he was light-skinned from Teaneck, New Jersey. And he actually had somewhat of a New England accent. And this was a prep school that we were at. And he actually s seemed to me to be more preppy than I, I mean, I was not, I didn't know that heritage at all. You come from a different culture. Yeah, then, yeah. yeah. Um, and for me growing up in Arabia, there, of course, there's always racism just about anywhere, but the racism that, that we were immersed in, in Saudi Arabia was, was not necessarily based on skin color. And so I grew up without that as an issue. So coming to the States in 1970, uh, with that still being such a hot button issue for people around me, I was just kind of lost for a mm -hmm. while. Did your parents remain Muslims? My dad did. My mom never became a Muslim. Okay. Uh, my dad, uh, he's in terms of faith. I would say uh, his his any kind of faith commitment to Islam slowly drained away from him. He remained culturally a Muslim and always referred to himself as a Muslim, but uh, but he did not engage in the practices. We never. I never saw him uh, praying at home. I I never knew him to go to the mosque. That describes a lot of people today, doesn't it? Well, it does. Uh, he also liked uh, bacon quite a bit. I don't, that doesn't <laughs> yeah, describe any yeah, Muslims, right, yeah. at least not in public. Uh, but um, so, I mean, he he could play the role, and that was very important for his work. Uh, he became the senior vice president of Aramco in charge of government affairs, and so mm -hmm. he worked uh, hand in glove with Saudi government officials. Right. And then with American oil company, uh, parent company officials. Did you ever identify yourself as an Arab or a Muslim person? When I, when I was about 12, I, I went through a phase where I was really interested in, in Islam. I asked my dad a lot of questions. He was kind of noncommittal in his responses. And I had a number of friends in the, in the oil company community from uh, usually not Saudis, but from other parts of the uh, Arab world who were working for Aramco. And we grew, you know, we grew up together. Were they devout Muslims? Uh, uh, practicing Muslims. Practicing, yeah, yeah I should yeah. say, right. Uh, if you live in Saudi Arabia, even if you're behind uh, closed fences, you still go out into the community. You go out to the markets, the souks, and you and uh, places. So you're surrounded by the culture of the Saudi culture, which is a strongly Islamic, mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. conservative culture. Mm -hmm. So that. 
that shapes your thinking. So how did you come to Christ with all that going on in your background? Well, that's that's a long story. I, when I was 13, somewhere in the age range, 13 to 14, I started to develop a, a hunger to have some questions answered. And interestingly, none, none of my siblings seemed to have any of those interests, nor my parents. But as as I was growing and reading, two big questions sort of started to loom in my mind. And one was, uh, is there uh, truth with a capital T out there somewhere in the world uh, or the universe? And I need to find that and respond however is appropriate. And the second question, which I thought was a separate question, was uh, what what is love? Is it possible to love people with no strings attached. Well, you were far more advanced as a 13-year-old than I was asking <laughs> well, those questions. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't, uh, I had no idea where the answers were, but uh, I, I knew how easy it was to love, uh, you know, in a quid pro quo way, you know, mm-hmm. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Um, and I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't know anything about agape kind of love, but I wondered if there was such a, you know, if it was possible to love people uh, in that kind of a way. And and I already had, at that point, turned away from Islam uh, because the Islam that I saw in Saudi Arabia was very, was like the countryside, very dry, dusty, hmm. um, uh, a, a harsh religion, uh, no sense of the presence of God, uh, no opportunity to draw close to God, no assurance of uh, love from God. You recognized all that. Interesting. So well, what, I saw it in my friends. You know, what drew you to uh, what you eventually started believing? Then I mean, to well, drew I, you to God. I couldn't at that point. Any kind of searching within the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition was just out of bounds. Mm-hmm. So I ended up turning eastward. Uh, I got a hold of a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by uh, an Indian fellow named Paramahansa Yogananda. And I read that, and I was really taken with that. Uh, and he was trying to build a bridge philosophically with uh, Eastern and Western views of life. So his the symbol that his group called the Self-Realization Fellowship came up with was a cross with a silver lotus at the intersection point. And um, so I was quite taken with that, became involved. That led me into the practice of yoga, uh, I ultimately ultimately moved away from that in, into a purer form called classical yoga and uh, was doing a lot of reading and uh, studying of Eastern mystical texts, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Taoist, uh, even Confucian, although that has nothing to do with yoga. But um, I became very interested in, in that, ended up pursuing classical yoga. That led to uh, a time... Uh, one uh, month, three-week period in India studying uh, under a guru on the outskirts of Bombay in his ashram. Boy, you were, you were really into it, weren't you? I was. That was. For me, that was life. Yeah. Mateen eventually found life in Christ, and we'll get to that part of the story coming up next here on First Person. When I first heard the good news on the FBC station, I tried praying to Jesus for the first time. Life is difficult, but Christ is helping me see things differently. The Far East Broadcasting Company receives millions of responses each year from grateful listeners. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. 
To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org. The Far East Broadcasting Company. Until all have heard. My guest is Mateen Elas. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. How would you pronounce it, or how would it be pronounced in the Arab world? Elas is in Arabic, but we say in English just Elas. Okay. Uh, Mateen has written some books. Understanding the Quran is one, a quick Christian guide to the Muslim holy book, and The Teachings of Jesus and Muhammad, both fascinating books. I want to crack these open the first chance I get. I just got my copies today, so looking forward to doing that, Mateen. Um, Thank you. We left you a moment ago pursuing Eastern religion in your life. And during what age period in your life did this all happen? Well, that was from age 14 until uh, age 20 when I met Christ. And in 19 was kind of the watershed moment when I was in in India at this ashram. And I was having my exit interview with this 90-plus-year-old guru. And he asked me what questions I had. And I said, well, I have two questions. First, does God exist? And his answer was typically Eastern, which is process-oriented rather than content-driven. And he said, well, if it helps you in your walk along the Eightfold Path to believe in God, then believe. If it doesn't help you, then don't worry about it. Did you see through that answer? Yeah, I thought, well, this, is, uh, this isn't a process answer. This is either, yes, God exists, or no, he doesn't exist. Hmm. And at that point, I was already a, I was a philosophy major at Stanford, and I'd come across uh, Blaise Pascal's wager, as it was called, um, looking at the question of God exists and whether I respond to him or not. And it's a pretty simple binary thing. If God exists and I believe in him, that's the best of all worlds. If he exists and I don't believe in him, that's the worst of all worlds. Hmm. If he doesn't exist and I do believe in him, then I'm a fool, but, you know, so what? If he doesn't exist and I don't believe in him, then okay, then I'm okay. But the odds are that uh, it's much worse if God exists and I reject him. So I thought this is a pretty simple deal, but uh, it wasn't for for this guru. So you were dissatisfied with that? Dissatisfied. And my second question, I had a number of Christian friends. I knew I didn't believe the gospel, but I I knew that they were declaring that Jesus was God who had come into this world as a human being and that uh, uh, human beings should give their allegiance to him. And uh, like I said, I thought that was kind of silly myself, but I but I loved these Christian friends. And so I asked the guru, uh, uh, who, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus God? And his answer was typically uh, Hindu. Uh, Jesus, he said, was an avatar, sort of this, like the life force of the universe every once in a while in human culture bubbles up into a particular uh, person who becomes, who is a model for how human beings should live. And he was fairly eclectic. He said, like uh, Buddha, like uh, Moses, like Muhammad, you know, Jesus was an avatar. I thought uh, that that's not satisfactory because I knew that that was that might have been his view, but that wasn't what Christians were saying. It wasn't a response to the gospel message. So I was I left India feeling uh, deflated. I thought I'm 19. This guy was in his 90s. I thought I I don't want to pursue. And he was from the Brahmin caste. He'd been in this all his life. I thought I, I don't want to live another 70 years and not have any more clarity then than I have now, which wasn't very much. <laughs> I have to think it was the Holy Spirit leading you to ask those deep questions you were asking at that time. What do you I, think? I, I think so as well, yeah. Because it led eventually to Christ, right? It did, although I didn't think I was headed towards Christ. I, I wasn't interested. I thought I was, you know, I was going a different direction. 
And it wasn't until the next year I met uh, a Christian girl. We started dating. She was part of the crowd of Christian friends that I had, college and high school friends in Saudi Arabia in the summers. And uh, I went to her college, started the end of the summer about a month before Stanford did. And so I was left in Arabia twiddling my thumbs when she'd gone back to her school. And spur of the moment, I decided, well, I'm going to leave and I'll go visit her on my way back to Stanford and uh, spend a few days at her school before I go visit some relatives and then get back to Stanford. And so I left, and by uh, God's providential working of things, I ended up uh, at her school. I didn't know in advance the address. I knew the name of the school and the closest city to fly into. But when you're a college kid, you think all these things will work out, and Uh, they did. All right, reveal the name of the school to Uh, me. Washita Baptist University (laughs) in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. (laughs) And, you know, when I think back, Wayne, there are two, two things from a human vantage point that were most con- uh, contributed most to my becoming a, a follower of Jesus. Of course, what, what you said, it was the Holy Spirit first and foremost, but in terms of a human response, uh, I saw at this Christian school a community of believers who actually loved people the way I thought human beings should love one another. And I also knew that that kind of love wasn't in my heart. So I was really intrigued. And as I got to know some of these students in particular, I would uh, point out to them that I'd seen them do something or other for another person. And I would ask them, what what motivated you to do that? And they were good Baptists. They talked about uh, Jesus living in their hearts. <laughs> and I, that meant nothing to me. <laughs> yeah, but I right. said to them, I, I'm not interested in the religious stuff. I just want to know where you get the power to love people like that. Mm-hmm. And they kept talking about Jesus. So it was the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives that led me to say, I want to know uh, the source of this. And they kept talking about Jesus. So I said, okay, I need to learn about Jesus. I was now 20 years old and uh, never read the Bible, never even read the Gospels, didn't know anything about Jesus other than what you pick up in culture, and that wasn't necessarily a good thing. So I said, okay, where, you know, where do I find out about Jesus? So we went through this uh a little process in the Bible. Okay, well, can we narrow it down? Yeah, New Testament. Well, okay, narrow it more. Gospels. I said, okay, Gospels, good. So what are Gospels? So uh, uh, one of my newer friends there gave me his Bible. He opened it to the Gospel of Matthew, said, start here, read till you get to the end of a book called John, and you'll have read about the life of Jesus. I thought, okay, I can do that. So I sat down, and it took me about three days of just, but I wasn't forced reading. I was just gripped by the accounts of Jesus. And I remember feeling like a little fly on the wall as all these events took place. And it was my first encounter with all of these stories. I, and uh, I, and that was transformative for me. I, I was transfixed by the person of Jesus that I saw in the Gospels. Hmm. And I remember thinking when I got to the end of the Gospel, John was kind of resurfacing into everyday world once again. I thought, I've never come across anyone like this Jesus and I, by that time, I was pretty well read in Eastern uh, philosophical and religious uh, materials, and also now as a philosophy major at Stanford, I was I'd read most of the had smatterings at least of readings in most of the influential philosophers up until the the Enlightenment period. And I said, uh, "There's nobody that that comes holds a candle to this Jesus. If there's ever anyone worth giving your life to follow, it would have to be this man." And I thought, 
Uh, if he were alive today, I would, I would go and find him uh, like a guru and ask him if I could be a student. And of course, I didn't realize till later that that's really what the word disciple means. Uh, so for me, the big question was, did, did Jesus really rise from the dead like the gospels say? Because I realized, it didn't take too much thinking to realize that if Jesus had been raised from the dead and now was beyond the power of death, that meant that he is alive. And that meant I could ask him. I might not hear back from him. Uh, I might not uh, see him. The, st the story of Thomas uh, uh, after the resurrection, not being there the first uh, Easter evening, and the disciples telling him, we've seen the Lord, and he said, no, you know, don't try to trick me. Forever dubbed Doubting Thomas. Uh, doubting yeah. Thomas, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then the next week, uh, G uh, Thomas is there when Jesus appears again. And I was, I was struck from the first time I read that account, I was struck by the fact that after Jesus greets them all, uh, in the second meeting, he turns directly to Thomas and says, okay, Thomas, perform your tests. And I remember thinking when I first read that, how did Jesus know what Thomas's tests were? Because he wasn't there in the, in the room and the disciples told him we've seen the Lord. But then I figured, okay, well, maybe he actually was in the room. And even though he wasn't visible to them, he heard what was going on. He knew. So I thought, okay, if he is alive, I can't ask him. And so that led me finally when I became convinced that the resurrection was much more likely an historical event than, than the, ex, uh, the excuses or other theories that skeptics give. I thought, what do I have to lose? This, if Jesus really is who he says he is and who the Bible says he is, who the church says he is, and, and I uh, turn away or I, I don't confront this and make a decision, it'll be the, it could be the worst thing I've ever done in my life. So I thought, what do I have to lose? Mm. We have just a moment left, and will you come back next week? We need to talk more about this, but <laughs> in the moment to. we have left now, uh, was that a, a sudden turning point, or was that a gradual turning point then for you? Was sudden. It sudden. It was sudden. Yeah, I remember uh, the, the night I was uh, with my then-girlfriend, um, and uh, we, uh, we didn't get married, by the way, but at that time we were... Uh, we were in love, thought we were going to get married. Uh, but there but was a turning point moment for you. Yeah, we, we were in her car, and we were talking about these things and, and uh, prayed. I, I said, I, I think I, I want to make a commitment uh, to Jesus, uh, but how do, you do how do I do that? She said, well, let's just pray. I said, well, how do you pray? <laughs> so she said, well, just talk to Jesus like he's sitting right here next to us and tell him what's in your heart and what you, what you want, that you want to— come clean. You want to uh, belong to him. You want him to take charge of your life. She said, I'll pray first. And then, then you pray whatever comes into your mind and heart. So I did. It had been a long struggle for me. All these ideas I had, I really had felt almost like a physical uh, battle going on in my head, pulling me back and forth. I felt like I had been sitting on this fence. And when I prayed, uh, this internal sense that, okay, I'm no longer on the fence. I now I'm in the camp of Christ. I belong to him. And uh, all this sense of peace flooded through me 42 years ago. We are going to extend this conversation into next week's first person as well, when Matina Lass will continue to talk about his testimony and also talk about his desire to reach Muslims with the gospel. He'll help us better understand Islam as we reach out to our own neighbors. And we'll have additional information about Mateen and his ministry at firstpersoninterview.com. Don't forget to also visit febc.org, the website for the Far East Broadcasting Company, to learn how to pray for this broadcast ministry. 
Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us for part two with Mateen Alas next time, right here on First Person. First Person.